get you to stand, turning your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 796. Again, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some Bibles there on the back table. You can go ahead and grab one of those. Zechariah 9 through 11. Pretty significant chunk here, so bear with me. And please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, 
from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, for, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the, of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus said the Lord, my God. Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left to devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. 
but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly pr price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, there is a lot here in these three chapters, and it can feel overwhelming uh, to try to take it all in, to try to understand the details, the circumstances, the things that happened so long ago and, and how they apply to our lives today. But God, we ask that in this time, you would make it clear, God, that you would speak by your spirit, that you would give your people eyes to see and ears to hear from you and in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you are joining us for the first time or have just started attending recently, uh, we are in a series in the Minor Prophets, been in the Minor Prophets for several months. Uh, we've covered a lot of big chunks, which has been a challenge. And as you can see, we are currently in Zechariah. We're finishing up Zechariah here in these next two weeks, finishing these last six chapters. Zechariah is the longest of the Minor Prophets. And as you might know, there are 66 books in the Bible. Zechariah is the 33rd longest book, so it's right there in the middle. And then we are today right here in the middle of Zechariah. We are pivoting now to the second half of the book. We've looked at chapters 1 through 8. We saw in chapters 1 through 6 those eight night visions uh, with some pretty wild stuff going on. And then last week in chapters seven and eight was this narrative bridge between the visions and between these two lengthy oracles that we will see again this week and next. So nine to 11, 12 to 14. Uh, if you were not with us last week, James preached from chapters seven and eight. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you weren't here, uh, but preached from chapters seven and eight and really focused in on the love of God. He asked us to consider some challenging questions, like, what is God's disposition toward you? And to ask yourself, how does God feel about me? Not in some touchy-feely kind of way, but how does God feel about us in his love for us? We saw last week God's promises of presence, peace, and people. Lindsay commented to me last Sunday afternoon, and we also talked about this in our community group. She said, I never would have expected Zechariah 7 and 8 to be this place where we would go to see the deep love of God for us. But it's there, right? And we saw it. It's amazing. 
And we're going to continue to see today the depths of God's love for us in Zechariah 9 through 11. Now, again, in this book full of visions and this book full of these oracles and just crazy imagery, you wouldn't think the love of God would be something that would come out this clearly. I've been thinking about this quite a bit this week. I think we need to consider this. I know I struggle with this. We hear about God's deep and fervent love for us. And we read in his word these promises, presence, and peace, and that we are his people. But don't we really struggle to, to believe it, to feel it, and to experience it in our lives? And I want to challenge this. Could it be that this stems from an incomplete view of who God is, an inaccurate view of who God is? When we think about God as a loving father, many of us struggle, perhaps because of a relationship we may have had with an earthly father, or maybe a struggling relationship we had with an earthly mother. Our view of God's parental love is often skewed. And maybe we might feel like, well, God loves us because he has to love us, right? He's God. He has to love us. I was kind of thinking about this a little bit this week, and I think there's an interesting kind of analogy here. Many of you know that Lexi and Allie and Avery's parents, John and Jennifer, were able to finalize their adoption this week of little Josh. Uh, such an awesome, got to see some of the pictures on Facebook, and many of you uh, have met them. Josh has been here. They were on the camping trip. Uh, just what an awesome picture uh, of, of who God is and his love for us. And, and James and Lexi are currently in the adoption process, and we are excited for you guys, and we're praying for you guys. And when we think about the love of an earthly parent, I was thinking about this week. I don't know Josh's mom. I don't know. I've heard you know, bits and pieces of her story. I don't, I don't know her, but I'm sure if you asked her, do you love little Josh? She would say, of course, I love him with all my heart. And it's not for a lack of love that he is now in another home. I'm sure it pains her to not be able to care for him and to provide for him. But the sin and brokenness in this world, they are all too present realities of our earthly relationships. But God is not hindered by the same things that earthly parents are. God doesn't struggle to care for and provide for his children in the same way that earthly parents may struggle to care and provide as painful as that is. He doesn't just love us, one side of that coin, but he is fully capable and he fully delights in providing for and caring for us, that other side of the coin. And we really see that play out in these chapters today. The title of the sermon, as you see there, is Our Caring, Victorious Shepherd King. Let's go to God's word now together as we unpack these glorious truths. I do want to remind us again of the challenge of reading the prophets. One of the big challenges is historically situating ourselves in the prophets, where we're at, what the present reality is for the prophets, what the past reality is as they're looking back, uh, and then what the future reality is, both the, the kind of the near future and then the distant future. We may have shared this before, but sometimes it's, it's helpful to think about this from the perspective of a mountain climber. So as someone is preparing to climb a mountain, uh, maybe, they, maybe they get driven up to some base camp that's already you know, kind of not right at the very bottom, and, and they can look 
down and they can see where they came from. There's that kind of immediate past and maybe they can see way far back. There's that distant past. So there's, there's that perspective of looking behind them. And then there's the present perspective of, of looking to their current reality, what's in front of them and kind of what that near future perspective is. And what they're probably going to see is a peak somewhere in front of them, right? That they have to climb, but eventually they're going to climb that peak and get over top of it. And if they don't know what's coming, they're going to say, Oh no, right. There's this other peak that might be way off in the distance that, and that's their next goal to climb. Now, when they were just starting out, they couldn't see past that first peak, right? They couldn't see the far off peak because their vision was, was blocked by the peak that was right in front of them. <clears throat> when we think about the prophets and we think about prophecy and fulfillment, a lot of times what the prophets are talking about in their day is that first peak, right? It's that first thing that needs to be summited and then there's going to be something after it. And maybe that second peak is Jesus coming, right? And fulfilling these things. But then we go over that next peak and there's another peak, right? And the, the far off distant, the, the pinnacle is the second coming. So it's kind of this, this working in stages. And as we read through the prophets, it's helpful to have that view in mind because there's just, there's a lot going on and we're not going to be able to dive into all of what's going on here, but I thought that would be just helpful reminder. Um, some of the challenging questions in Zechariah are about the timing of certain events. There are helpful phrases, thankfully, like in verse 16 of chapter nine, where it says on that day. Uh, in other places in the prophets, we see that language. We also see the words, the day of the Lord. Uh, this can refer to near coming future judgments like the exile. Uh, it can, again, relate to things about Jesus first coming. And then ultimately, the day of the Lord is, is usually referring to the second coming, the end of days, the, the last and final day. The focus of much of Zechariah 9 through 14, these next two weeks, is mostly on that final day of the Lord language. So these two oracles, 9 through 11 and 11 and 12 through 14, are focused very heavily on this, this final day of the Lord idea. So here's what we're going to see specifically in chapters 9 through 11. If you're taking notes, there's kind of four main sections, four main headings that we're going to see. The first is that God will put down the rebellion of the nations. Second is that he will restore the king. Third, he will care for his people. And fourth, God will judge Judah's unfaithful leaders. So he will put down the rebellion of the nations, restore the king, care for his people, and judge Judah's unfaithful leaders. We're going to walk through these chapters and some of these things overlap a little bit. We'll also consider a little bit of application as we go, and then we'll see some application at the end. But the first thing we see here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, is the Lord putting down the rebellion of the nations. We see it right away in verse 1. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. So there's this immediate uh, word, this oracle, which is usually related to judgment, that God is against these places and that his eye is upon them. So we get that imagery of him coming to put down the rebellion of the nations right off the bat. And look at verses three and four. Look at what Tyre has done for herself. She has built a rampart. She has heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. 
That's what Tyre has done for herself. And then we see what God will do in response in verse 4. The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. This is what the Lord does. And this response then we see of the nations around who see what the Lord does. In verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also. So God will cause these responses. There's, there's fear, there's anguish. But it's not just emotional responses. It's not just these nations shaking in their boots. God will actually do something. It says the king in the second half of verse 5, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. The pride of Philistia will be cut off. And God says that he will take away its blood from its mouth. This is talking about uh, their, their idolatry, their uh, idolatrous practices. They will be cut off. And then we see in the second half of verse 7 and verse 8, this sudden reversal where the nations are now gathered to the Lord. And in verse 8, it says that God encamps at his house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. We see that connection back to verse one of God's eyes being over the whole world. This very powerful imagery here. This word here for encamp is used all throughout the Old Testament, and it usually is used in relation to battle. It's usually that an army is encamping or against, or an army is encamping around their foes. But here, this encampment of the Lord is not for destruction, but instead it's for protection. Perhaps God's people were to call to mind here Psalm 34, 7, written by David, who knew a thing or two about being encamped with having enemies encamped around him. And this great Psalm, praising God for his deliverance, listen to what David exclaims. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. God cares for and protects his people. That's the third thing that I said we would look at. But it's really the central theme that runs through these chapters. That's how God demonstrates his love for his people and caring for and protecting them. We see that played out in verses 9 and 10 in this beautiful, beautiful description of the coming king. It begins with these exhortations to the people. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. Behold. Behold, this king is coming. This one who is righteous and having salvation. Now our minds might immediately go to a scene that the world got to witness just yesterday in the coronation of King Charles III. Now, I did not wake up at 5 a.m. or whatever it was to watch it live. If you did, no judgment. Uh, I did click on the YouTube video and like scroll through and, and catch some of these, these things I was reading about it. But Charles and Camilla, they come riding in in this golden carriage pulled by six magnificent white horses with what had to be over 100 men on horses, both in front and behind on these beautiful, majestic black horses. 
That was followed by two hours of pomp and circumstance during this ceremony. And then at the end, they are ushered away again in this golden carriage. All the pride and, and the brilliance of human achievement broadcast for the whole world to see. But what does God show us here? This king is humble, and he's mounted on a donkey, a slow-moving beast of burden. He's not coming with power and might. He's not coming with pomp and circumstance in a golden carriage. And we're familiar with this picture, aren't we? This is quoted in Matthew and John's Gospels as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the people rejoiced greatly and they shouted aloud for their humble king. Keep this imagery in the back of your mind because we'll come back to that. This shocking imagery continues on in verse 10. God is going to cut off the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow, the things that humans depended upon, these human kings depended upon in war. God says he's going to cut them off. Because this king, God's king, did not come to wield his power and dominate his enemies in the way that earthly kings would. He came, as we see there in verse 10, to speak peace to the nations and to rule the whole earth. This is all tied in with the restoration of the temple and the earlier visions and the sign actions that we saw in chapters 1 through 6 about the branch sitting upon his throne. This would have been good news to the people of Israel and Judah, who had both been dominated by enemy nations that had been, had been taken into exile over the last 200 years. And what the Lord describes through Zechariah here in the rest of chapter 9 is a reminder of his promises. It starts with covenant faithfulness there in verse 11. God says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, probably referring back to the Mosaic covenant, which was instituted with blood, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. Verse 12, we see this language of returning, of restoration, of restoring them double. The imagery in verse 13 is significant. For I have bent Judah as my bow. Judah is the people of God in the south. And it says, I have made Ephraim its arrow. Ephraim is, is Israel. It's the people in the north. God is going to reunite his people. The battle bow, the bow and the arrow are going to be reunited as God does this glorious work. Now, if you have the ESV, you see the chapter heading before verse 14 says, the Lord will save his people. So we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, a description of God's great salvation. Verse 15 says, the Lord of hosts will protect them. We've talked about this several times. This, this word here, Lord of hosts, means God of heaven's armies. There's this picture of battle. There's this picture of, of victory, of God's righteous and just victory. And this is also where we begin to see God's shepherding care of his people. He is both shepherd and king. These roles cannot be separated. Remember David. David was the shepherd boy who eventually became the king. Psalm 23, which we already sang, that beautiful imagery of God as shepherd and king. As shepherd, he leads us and guides us to still waters. 
As king, he prepares the table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. We see this especially in verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. God will save his flock. This beleaguered people who have been on the receiving end of the wrath of enemy nations will now shine like jewels on the crown of their God. His treasured possession for all the world to see. Do we believe this, church? Do we believe this about ourselves? That our God will do this, not for our own glory, but for his. And that he is, in fact, already doing it through a people as unspectacular as we are. For, it says in verse 17, how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Are we seeking to make his beauty and his goodness shine for the world to see? Or are we seeking to make a name for ourselves, for people to look at us? Now, lest you think this is some rant against young people and their social media use, we all know that older people are just as guilty of this. Putting ourselves out there, right? Glorying in what we have done. Glorying in what our kids have done. And it's not wrong to post about your kids and be proud about your kids. But I think we need to check our hearts most of the time before we post things. It's not just about social media use, right? This is some new phenomenon, right? Like, oh, I'm tempted to boast about myself all of a sudden, and social media has created that. No, like, this has been human history. This has been the hearts of humans for all of time. It's about all that we do. It's about the things that we wear. It's about the things that we drive. It's about the things that we buy. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not against Christians having nice things. I'm not against working hard and owning nice things. Um, lived in China for many years and saw a lot of fake products uh, that are not like the real thing. And 99.9% of the time, you get what you pay for. Uh, if you buy junk, you very quickly have to replace junk. So it's okay to buy. I talked about tools a couple of weeks ago, right? Don't go buy the cheapo Menards tools they're going to break. Buy a nice brand, right? Okay. But it's not about having stuff. It's not about having nice stuff. It's about our motivation in that, right? Are we doing it to show off our collection? Or do, are we doing it to boast about what we have and, and what we're about? It's about our hearts. Are we about ourselves or we, are we about the Lord? Are we seeking our own glory in all these things that we do, or are we seeking the glory of the Lord? One way we could frame this is by asking, what does our dependence upon the Lord look like? We get a very clear picture of what it should look like with this command and this attached promise in the first verse of chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. 
Now, this was an agrarian people who were desperately dependent upon rain for their survival, for the health of their crops, for their animals, for their own livelihoods. But what did they do instead of turning to the Lord in prayer? See it in verse 2. They turned to household gods, these utterers of nonsense, and to diviners, a.k.a. fortune tellers, who see lies, who tell false dreams, who give empty consolations. Now, most of us don't come from farming families, and I don't think we have anyone who's currently farming full-time. Maybe some of us have gardens in our yard, but you can just go out and turn the hose on, right, and, and water your garden. You don't need to be fully dependent upon the Lord for the health of your garden. So we're not like the ancient Israelites, right? We don't have temptation to rely on false gods or to listen to other voices, do we? Do we? Well, of course we do. And the reality seen for God's people in the second half of verse two is something that we can certainly relate to and experience today. It says, therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. We sing that great hymn, come thou fount of every blessing. And we sing the words prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And we acknowledge that our hearts are prone. They're inclined. They're susceptible to go after other lovers. To use the language we kicked off this Minor Prophets series with in Hosea. We are all spiritual adulterers. And we have to take this seriously. We have to confess this to the Lord and seek to hear our good shepherd's voice and to know him and to follow him. In John chapter 10, which we read in our New Testament reading, a major point of Jesus' emphasis was on how there are strangers and thieves whose voices the true sheep do not follow. It doesn't say that the sheep don't hear these voices. It says that they don't follow him. Of course, they hear these voices. It's like a loudspeaker being, being blasted in their ears all the time saying, come this way, follow me. Follow the ways of this world. But the true shepherd, he guides them and he guards them. He makes that outside noise fade away as he whispers to his sheep and they hear his voice and they follow him. So what is this referring to here when it says they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd? Now, obviously, we Saw Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. This isn't saying God isn't their shepherd, but this is addressed to human shepherds, specifically the leadership of God's people. No doubt what Jesus was getting at in John 10 when he addressed these words to the Pharisees. And this is really going to be the point of emphasis from chapter 10, verse 3, through chapter 11, verse 17. I'm not really going down this road uh, in, in this sermon. I'm mostly talking about God's care for us and his victory as our shepherd king. But if I was doing this in, in multiple parts, we would look at the role of human shepherds and the responsibility of human shepherds. For those of us who are pastors and elders in the church, this is a terrifying couple chapters, right? This is really like get you on the edge of your seat and 
kind of wake up call, right? Am I doing the work that God has called me to do? So just so you know, I'm not diving into that, but there was plenty of, of self-reflection on these things this week. But what we're going to look at here again is the care of God for his people. And we will see the failure of Judah's leaders to faithfully shepherd God's people. Those things are going to be kind of intertwined throughout these two chapters. We see it very concretely and powerfully portrayed right off the bat here in verse three. It says, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Now, this is this two-pronged approach here, which is really highlighted in the Hebrew. Unfortunately, the ESV doesn't quite capture the significance of this but the words here for punish speaking of punishing the leaders and the word care for speaking of the flock so it's kind of again this kind of two prongs right the leaders and the people these words for punish and care for are the same hebrew words so this idea would really would come out for the original hearers now, this is one of those challenging words because it has lots of different meanings uh, we have several words in English that you look it up in the dictionary and there's like 12 to, to 20 different meanings, right? This, a word can be used in a lot of different ways and it's fun to have some like plays on words. That's kind of what's going on here. But this word here, this Hebrew word that's used here, it's used 299 times in the Old Testament and the ESV translates it with 44 different words. Um, so it's, this is a challenging word to translate. Um, there are also 28 different senses, uh, if, you, if you know what like the sense of the word is. So uh, to punish could be one sense. So it might, the sense might be punished, but it might have several different words that are translated under that sense, or the sense might be to care for. And then there are several ways. Uh, so this, again, this, this one word, 28 different senses, 44 different words used. Um, so just to see what's, what's going on here, uh, it can mean things like, uh, Punish can mean to avenge or afflict. Uh, it can mean, in terms of caring for, it can mean to inspect or to count or to attend to. And I think if we were trying to bring this out in the English, same word, I think the word attend would probably be the best word that we could use. So we could say uh, that God will attend the leaders, attend to the leaders, uh, for the Lord of hosts attends to his flock. The same idea is actually seen in Jeremiah 23, 2, which is referring both to the leaders and to the people in the same way that it does here. And again, it's the same Hebrew word that's used. So this is kind of one of those head scratchers. You're, if the translators did this in one verse, it's like, why didn't they do, it, do this in the other verse? But here's what it says uh, in Jeremiah 23, 2. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. Now, the word care here is a different word, uh, so don't get confused with that. But he's talking to the shepherds who are called to care for my people. He says this. He says, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So the, the shepherds have not attended to or cared for the flock. And then God says, behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds declares the Lord. So I bring all this up because there's, there's this point of it's the same idea. Uh, they're not attending to the flock and God will attend to them. God will take care of them in a sense. So that word can kind of carry this meaning. So the shepherds here 
who are being unfaithful are really being, the, the screws are being put to them by God saying, you were called to do this and you didn't do it. Therefore, I'm going to do this uh, to you. So that's that. And the issue in Jeremiah's day, uh, which was leading into the Babylonian exile, and the issue in Zechariah's day after they had returned from exile, were at the heart the same issue. The leaders were not shepherding the flock of God, but God promised that he would. He would care for and attend to his people, even though the leaders did not do so. Now look at some of the things the Lord promises, beginning in verse 6. He says that he will strengthen, he will save, he will bring back, he will have compassion, and he will answer them. These are all things that God will do for his flock, for his people, even though the earthly leaders did not do that. Then look at verse 9. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. God is reminding them of who he is. He is calling them back to himself. Look then at verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Chapter 11 then returns to the theme of judgment upon Judah's unfaithful leaders. First in this taunt song in verses 1 to 3, where they are compared to trees that will be devoured with fire and felled and ruined. Notice the beginning of verse 3. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. They were only concerned for their own glory, not the glory of the sheep. God, therefore, has ruined their glory. Now, the rest of chapter 11 contains two sign actions, verse 4 through 14 and verse 15 through 17. And we saw the first sign action in chapter 6 when God told Zechariah to make a crown and to put it on the head of Joshua the high priest. Here he is told to act out this judgment upon the leaders by becoming a shepherd to the flock doomed to slaughter. Now this here is an indictment upon those who are called sheep traders. These are not real shepherds. They're like the thieves and the robbers in John chapter 10. They buy and sell the people of God for their own gain and glory. And the Lord will have none of it because he is the true shepherd who cares for his flock. Now, there are a lot of questions here in verses 4 through 17. There's questions about the timing of these events, about the significance of these two staffs called favor and union. There's questions about the identity of the three shepherds in verse 8 and the shepherd in verse 16, who is the opposite of the Lord, who does not care for or attend to those being destroyed, the one who is called my worthless shepherd in verse 17. Regarding these verses, one Old Testament scholar says, these verses, which are among the most cryptic in the Bible, have defied the efforts of interpreters to pin down their meaning. For this reason, the interpretations offered here must be considered provisional and to some degree speculative. Now, I don't think you want to sit here any longer and listen to me speculate about all of these things going on in these verses. And I don't think I need to, because the point is pretty clear. The people of God need a faithful shepherd. And the Lord himself is our shepherd. 
Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Do we hear his voice? Do we hear our shepherd's voice today? Do we know that his love is demonstrated to us in his attending to us, protecting, providing for, restoring us, and ultimately his riding into Jerusalem, not as an earthly king in a golden carriage coming to conquer the earthly enemies of his people, but on a humble donkey displaying that just as he came into the world, humble, meek, and lowly. So he would leave this world by going to the cross to lay down his life that his sheep might have salvation. Not from their earthly enemies, but from the enemies of sin and death and the devil. If you are a Christian today, this is your shepherd king. The one who has fully demonstrated to us the love of God And that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And that while we were like sheep who had gone astray, he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. Again, I ask us, do we know him? Do we hear his voice? Are we following him? And if you are here today and you are not a Christian, You need to both hear of and embrace this humble shepherd king, the one who laid down his life so that you might live. He invites you today to hear his voice and to live. But you also need to hear the consequences, not just for yourself personally, but for the whole world if it will not bow the knee and submit to the shepherding care or the kingly rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. For when he does come again, it will not be on a humble donkey. This will be the coronation service of all coronation services. That you don't need to turn on your TV or log in to YouTube to watch. Hear the words from Revelation 19 as John describes the second coming of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you know him? Have you bowed the knee to this great shepherd king. And if not, what are you waiting for? For those who do know him, may we continue to submit to his gentle shepherding care and his majestic kingly rule so that we might shine as the jewels on his crown for all the world to see that he might be honored and glorified. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And God, your care for us as both our shepherd and our king. God, that you lead us and guide us, that you protect us and provide for us. God, that you defeat our enemies so that we don't have to fight with earthly means. God, help us as your people to hear the voice of our shepherd, Jesus, our good shepherd. May we hear him. May we know him. May we walk with him and tell the world of him. Father, if there are any here who do not yet know the shepherd's voice, would you call them? Would you speak your words of life and truth into their ears that they might hear and know you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just before that great picture of Jesus returning on a white horse to judge the nations in Revelation chapter 19, we get another beautiful picture. It's the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to God's word, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What we get to do here now is a foretaste of this marriage supper that is to come. We get to come and we get to feast. We get to take the bread, which represents the body of our Savior broken for us. We get to take the cup, which represents his blood shed, poured out for us. And we get to feast again as a foretaste of the marriage supper that is to come. We see this imagery here in Revelation 19. It is those who are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. We know on this side of eternity that we don't come to this table clothed in something that we have created, something that we have done. We come because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the invitation is to all of those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, who say, yes, I can come to this meal clothed in his righteousness and not my own. We ask that you would be someone who is a believer in Christ, who has been baptized, who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. And if that is not you at this time, I would love to talk with you more. Any of our elders, anyone here would love to talk with you about what it means to truly follow Jesus, to hear his voice, to follow him as your good shepherd. If those who are serving would come down at this time.